This is Sarah Bordeaux, and you are listening to PodSAM, the podcast channel of SAM Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. The concept of the SAM huddle has been to invite mountain resort operators to gather virtually and share the challenges and solutions in front of us due to the COVID-19 pandemic. On this episode of our special huddle mini-series, we take a broader view and gather insights from other industries facing similar challenges and looking for ways to be more resilient. On Monday, May 4th, we gathered a panel of business leaders from the pro sports, airline, restaurant, construction, hotel, and entertainment industries, all of which face many of the same challenges as mountain resorts. We will all have to find ways to evolve technologically, economically, socially, and culturally in this new normal. We'll start the discussion here with Sam publisher, Olivia Rowan. Thank you for joining us today on our Monday huddle. Uh, I'm Olivia Rowan, the publisher of Sam Magazine, and my co-hosts today are Claire Humber with the SE Group and John Ashworth with Bull Stockwell Allen. So let's get started with our first guest. Um, Travis, we're going to start with you, if that's all right. Travis Williams, president of the Pittsburgh Pirates um, and formerly president of business operations of the New York Islanders and COO of the Pittsburgh Penguins, NHL. Um, so we're pleased to have you today and represent the pro sports side of things. We're all sort of anxiously watching that um, as well as fans. Um, so what I would start with is when the virus hit, most of our ski areas had about a month left of prime season um, on, you know, left with, with our season. But for Major League Baseball, the virus hit just before opening day. Um, so how have you been communicating with fans during this time where you didn't actually even get to open to that pent-up demand? So what, what have you been doing in the meantime? Thanks, Olivia. Uh, thanks for everyone for having, a, having me today. Uh, thanks for painfully reminding me that we are two weeks away from opening day <laughs> before this hit. Uh, I think we had a handful of, or of uh, spring training games left till we got there. But uh, no, we, we, uh, I, I put this kind of, I look at it in terms of how we responded and how we will continue to respond to that need uh, for baseball kind of in four phases is the way I looked at it. Uh, the first phase for us was there's a reality that life was just simply bigger than baseball. Um, and so we wanted to lean in and show compassion as a community trust. Uh, that's the way we view ourselves. So it was kind of early communication by our owner, Bob Nutting, myself, out to the fan base, to our season ticket members, um, and really also trying to identify what are the needs that are out there during this crisis and how can we as a, as a, a community steward lean in and uh, stay visible and helping others. That was really phase one for us because it was too early to talk about baseball during that point. And then phase two was really a few weeks in, people got used to the new normal, uh, the stay at home, uh, social distancing. And so it was okay to start talking about baseball. And we tried to use baseball to fill a void for people. Uh, New forms of engagement that we hadn't done before. We were televising old game broadcast. We televised our 1960 Game Seven World Series, where Mazeroski hit the uh, famous home run against the Yankees, and that was one of the actually uh, I think is the number two highest rated uh, replayed television programming that's out there right now uh, in sports. Um, we made personalized emails, calls. Uh, we developed online activities for kids since they were going to be homeschooling. Uh, we created specialized content among several of our experts, so our nutritionist. Uh, would create some uh, uh, 
materials to send out to our fans about what they can be doing to eat more, eat healthier during this uh, time when they're staying at home. Uh, our trainer did some extra, uh, act, did some uh, content and created some around what are some at-home activities. And then we made it fun for kids by using our mascot to put that out there. Uh, and then more recently, we really started to host, like much like this, the huddles. We've done virtual happy hours with our season ticket members, uh, with our um, uh, suite holders, and with uh, a segment of our uh, corporate sponsors. Um, having one of our sponsors um, host it, like Jim Beam or Miller Lite, um, sending out some uh, goodies to each of the people that are on the call, and really try to have an interactive call with our coaches, uh, our general manager, some of our players have popped in on those, and we're doing a series of those uh, through now. But really finding innovative ways to interact. And then the third phase for us is we need to talk about baseball because now we're starting and we're just we're starting to turn the corner where we're starting to have some answers about what the season may or may not look like. So really want to be open, honest, fair uh, to everyone, announcing cancellations, making sure as we're talking about what the refund and cancellation policies look like, that we're really reasonable, fair, and honest and open with all of them as we have those discussions. And then phase four is one that hasn't happened yet, but will, and that is baseball will have returned in some form. Um, and I, I look at that as this is our opportunity to use baseball to heal a community and bring it back together again and, and unite it. And so for us, it's really about how can we create that outstanding experience, whether it's in person, uh, if they're able to come to the ballpark uh, or at home and bringing that in-person experience to the home if they're only going to be able to watch on television, meaning what is our game entertainment video board and the giveaways that we do? How do we, how do we transition that into a home, uh, a home opportunity or home experience? Um, and then once the in-game experience, once people were able to return to the ballpark, how can we make that in-person experience as fun and easy as possible for them? Uh, realizing that right now people are going to be hesitant because not only are they going to have financial strains on them because of this crisis, they're also going to have health concerns about getting back together in mass gatherings. So we need to convince people from our perspective, it's going to be safe to come back to the ballpark and we're going to make it as for affordable and fun as possible for them to come back. And, and really our key themes throughout all these has been open and honest communication as early and often as possible. We've really remained calm and compassionate throughout the crisis. That's been one of our, our hallmarks. We've stayed connected with all of our season ticket members and our fans along the way uh, in any way that we can through email, through calls, through video conferences, through virtual happy hours. Um, we're also remembering throughout this that our season ticket members are long-term relationships. It's not short-term. So as we're thinking about refund policies and credit policies and things like that, making sure that we're just not out for the short-term gain or the short-term savings. It's really that long-term relationship that we're building. So we're asking them how they're doing. We're not saying, you know, when are you paying your invoice? That's not the type of discussions that we're having. And then I think a, a big part of it is thinking outside of the box. Um, this is an opportunity for us to be innovative in our sport. Um, I think when you go through crisis, you tend to innovate a little bit more. And I think this is a good opportunity for us to continue to look at, at ways in which we can deliver content and connect with our fans in ways that maybe we haven't done before but are necessitated by the fact that there's social distancing and stay at home. And then last but not least, just remember, there's really no manual for this. Um, there's no book you can pick up and read and, and understand how to deal with this crisis. So it's really kind of you feel your way through it, but you really are you're always prepared for the worst and uh, hoping uh, for the best. So that's essentially how we've really 
attack this, if you will, uh, from day one. Travis, when you think about, um, we have this sort of parallel thing going on in the ski industry where on the one hand, we're thinking about that pent up demand for getting outside and Dave just, just talked about that a little bit. And then we're also thinking about how that translates into that new normal of masks and gloves and distancing. When you are thinking about opening day, um, two sort of interrelated questions. How are you thinking about capacity and, and the realities of, of maybe having to reduce that because of distancing? Um, and how are you sort of thinking about how the, that sort of changed experience will be for your for your fans when they show up yeah uh, for us it's you know we've already started to do a lot of modeling around what does capacity look like when you when you put in place social distancing guidelines in a mass gathering environment of a ballpark right so mm. uh, it's not pretty uh, for us um, your our capacity probably is about 25% of what our normal capacity would be just based on some early guidance we've gotten. There's nothing concrete about this, but you know, they've been talking to us about two rows in front and two rows behind are empty and then every four seat. So when you start to do that and, and add that in, uh, plus you start to reduce capacities of clubs and uh, you start to reduce capacities of suites and closed in areas, uh, you get to about 25%. So it's going to be a, 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 a dynamic shift uh, for us. Plus, it's not just about, you know, what the capacity looks like in terms of how you see them, because if you could teleport them all in and sit them in their seats, it'd be easy. But there's also the reality of, you know, we're used to in our industry, and, and I hate to use this crude phrase, but we're used to moving people in like cattle, yeah. um, in and out, right? And so, you know, people are used to being shoulder to shoulder, face to face, throughout the entirety of the ingress and egress process. And so for us, that's going to significantly change as well, along with all the things that we have to check people on, uh, because it's no longer just taking their ticket and checking them through a magnetometer, but you're also now taking temperatures and uh, making sure that they have the protective gear in place that's going to be required uh, by whatever government or health agencies uh, are, are going to be regulating us at that point in time. So we're starting, we're just, we're, we're, we have started, but we are early on in the process of what does that look like? Because our working assumption and based on everything that uh, the health experts are telling us, there will be no mass gatherings for us uh, in, in ballparks when we start the season. So most of what we're doing now is around safely returning people to work, safely getting uh, comfortable with what a ball game looks like without crowds, and then working towards the end of the season, the, the broader scale of what is that, that next phase is, what does that look like with, fans back in the ballpark mm. just circling back to that communication thing again travis have you thought about like how are you going to be communicating to your fans that they may not be able to get in because of that lack of capacity and and your season's pass holders and like have you thought about that sort of hierarchy of of communication around the reduction of capacity yeah, our, our first phase would be to simply work with our season ticket members who are our longest standing and and most valued and give them the opportunity, understanding that their seat may not necessarily be the same seat they've sat in for the last several years during this odd sort of period um, and having to work through that with them. And then I think based on whatever the, uh, the uh, take would be on that offer, uh, whatever is the residual capacity that we have, then we could go out to the fan base and offer that out more generally 
on groups and individual games. But it'll be a much different operating. We haven't we haven't necessarily pinned that down because we don't know yet what our schedule looks like, and we don't yet know what the capacity is going to be based on those guidelines. But early plans have shown that we're going to have to do it in that type of prioritized system that you you start again with your most valued your most valued customers. And Travis, one, we'll take one question and then move to our, our next guest, but uh, this is from an operator who said, are you considering any sort of price reductions or value-based pricing to try and help drive attendance? But that maybe isn't your problem. You don't need to drive attendance. <laughs> you need to cut it back. But, well, I, 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 I'm not quite sure that we won't need to drive attendance. I, I, I am concerned uh, through the end of the season, and quite frankly, I'm concerned until we have a, until we have a vaccine. Um, that there's going to be a significant enough health concern about people being in a ballpark shoulder to shoulder. So I think for us, the reality is, is we're going to have to make it, as I said earlier, well, I think two things, make people feel comfortable and safe coming back into the environment and make it affordable because I think there's such a financial stress being put on people with the, the level of unemployment and uh, other things that, you know, typically it's the recreational activities that get cut first. So for us, I think we are going to be very aggressive in terms of making this, and we were already headed down this path anyways, given where our cycle was on, on season ticket sales and just general fan interest is going heavily and aggressively after family affordable fund and really returning people to the ballpark as a family unit. And so we're just gonna continue that and double down on that even more so. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Travis. That was very insightful. Um, we're going to go to our next guest now. Our next guest um, is Ryan Turner. Uh, he's a restaurateur for Unsake Concepts, um, a co-founder of The Giving Kitchen, former chairman of the Georgia Restaurant Association. Um, you have, how, hi Ryan, you have four restaurants, is that three, four? Yeah, we have four. We have four, four restaurants. So we've all been following the news uh, about Georgia as they made the, the biggest push to reopen businesses, um, including restaurants. So the big question would be, have you opened your restaurant and, and why or why not? No, we have not. Uh, we have, um, you know, I think pretty obvious reasons. We're, we're not ready um, ourselves. And there's a couple of things. I mean, our decision making from the beginning when the bottom fell out on us was, you know, three pronged. It was what's best um, for our staff uh, and then what's best for our guest, and then what's best for our business. And the way that we're going to come back into this with dining in will be the same. Um, it's no different than the hospitality and our, you know, the, our approach is very simple, but not necessarily easy to execute. It's, you know, hospitality comes from within. And so if you can create a certain feeling uh, amongst your, your team, it will naturally extend into the guest experience. And so we're looking at it the same way as far as when we feel like we're ready to open is going to be very much based on our staff and their, their feeling comfortable and safe by the measures that we're going to put in place. Um, so we're not there yet. Um, there are restaurants that have been opening, uh, obviously, um, more so and more so outside of Atlanta. Georgia's kind of separate. It pretty much is Atlanta and then the rest of the state. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that the governor's decision was based on um, a lot of it was based on the rest of the state uh, where there is not as much concern. Uh, the social distancing is very different. The demand for people to dine in is much higher. Our guests have been communicated to us very, very clearly that they um, they support our decision to not allow for dine-in, um, and they're encouraging us to um, 
you know, continue down that path. We, we've been fortunate to have um, a, a pretty swift uh, carry out business and, and, and delivery. And, you know, we, our business model literally changed on the fly um, overnight and it will never be the same. So we're doing things that we weren't doing before from delivery to, you know, I'm hosting a couple of virtual wine tastings a week. Um, there's all kinds of, of, of unique things that are, are keeping us um, in a position where we don't have to uh, open. We've been fortunate to, to, to receive the PPP funding. Um, so we do have some cover and we have some time uh, to make, uh, make a decision to do this the right way. Um, you know, similar to what Travis was saying, we have uh, one of our concepts is a private club. Um, so we have um, the ability to have a very intimate um, you know, conversation, communication, and invitation uh, for them to come back and experience the way that we're going to be doing it. Uh, and then we've also got um, a speakeasy at one of our restaurants and, and um, uh, a fan club we call the Ambassadors, which is basically our super fans. And we will invite them back first as we test this out. And these are the folks that are just um, have been for 15 years supporting us and wanting us to win. Uh, and, um, and so we're just not going to open it up. Um, and so our capacity is certainly an issue. We're going to be um, doing uh, reservation deposits at uh, uh, one of our places. And um, so basically we're going to go with half of our inventory. So if someone wants to come in and dine, uh, we're going to ask them to put down right now we're thinking 20 bucks per person, which will be applied to their bill uh, at the end of the dining experience. Uh, so we can protect that limited inventory and uh, make sure that we're, we're getting a certain amount of dollars. Um, and it's really tough to say if the demand's going to be, there are, there's, a, there's a, a large group of people that are excited to get out and we may get overrun a little bit, um, but I'm not, we're not betting on that. And so we're going to do our best to control it. And, um, and just like we've been doing for the last seven weeks, we're going to watch and calibrate daily. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of really sick of the word pivot at this point. Um, it's, <laughs> I feel like I'm living in Silicon Valley now. Um, it's, we're using it so much, but, um, but we're going to continue to do so. And, and I assume we're assuming that's going to be the case for the next six months. It's just going to be, um, a live and learn. Um, I'm just, I'm just happy that it's no longer by the hour. <laughs> that's very true. Um, I did read um, just earlier today that uh, a bunch of the restaurants, 50 of them, got together and did a full-page ad. Yes. Um, were you part of that? In Georgia, restaurants throughout the state have been closed for dine-in service since April 1, when Governor Kemp issued statewide social distancing measures. Those measures were lifted on April 27th. However, in an effort to protest the lifted measures, 50 restaurants in the Atlanta metro area took out a full-page ad in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can view the ad on our Instagram page, at Sam Magazine. No, we chose, we chose not to um, be a part of that um, for, for a number of reasons. Um, we, there's a lot of restaurants, I mean, there's, there's 123 restaurants that signed that petition, um, which is about 0.007% of the state's restaurants. And we felt there was a lot of um, restaurants that were um, not necessarily being included uh, in this representation. And um, we also feel like there's, um, you know, it's up to each business owner to make the decisions that's best for them. There's a lot of restaurant owners, um, you know, let me give you, I mean, I'll give you some numbers. I mean, 9% of the PP funding 
is going to the restaurants and 60% of the unemployment since March is, is from the restaurant workforce. And so there's a lot of restaurants who have not received funding. They've tried carry out and there's not, there's, there's not enough business to make sense there. Um, they've got staff members who, who don't yet have, they're, they're not receiving unemployment, uh, documented or undocumented. And for them, they have no choice in their mind but to open. The risk of opening is less to them than the risk of not. And you got people that it's their life's work, it's their dream, it's everything on the line. And so we just didn't feel right um, putting, uh, I guess, publicly making a statement. We, we just thought we would just let our actions speak for us, as I think you probably you know is a good plan anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as uh, founders of The Giving Kitchen, uh, which is a, a not-for-profit that serves the food service industry, um, there's a lot of restaurants that were looking, uh, talking about opening uh, last week, and they're big supporters of The Giving Kitchen. Uh, one of them in particular, you know, Roos, the local operator for Roos Chris, and they've been, they've been crucified in the media. Um, there's not another group of restaurants um, in the city that has given more to the Giving Kitchen to the benefit of the food service workers facing crisis in that restaurant group. And they weren't invited to be a part of this, and it, it just it didn't feel right to us. Yeah, I was just interested that they mobilized. You know, yeah. you're seeing a lot of states that what the governor's saying is different from the mayor's and then this restaurant faction is doing their own mandate. And so it seems like we're in some times where uh, there's conflicting ways. There is. Yeah. There's, I mean, little, little, you know, uh, coalitions. And I think a lot of it is, is, um, you know, we're all in uncharted waters. And so everyone is, um, you know, collaborating and talking to each other more than they were. And um, which I think is fantastic. I mean, for us, we've been always been open to talking to our competitors um, and, and we've been really proud of Atlanta as a restaurant community. The Giving Kitchen wouldn't have started without all of, you know, a lot of restaurants coming together uh, as competitors to take care of their own. And, um, and so it didn't surprise me to see that coalition pop up, um, but it, it, it did, um, it, it just got, got to a place that wasn't comfortable for us and, and being founders and board members, um, we just didn't feel like making a public statement was the right thing to do. Great. And I'll take one question from the audience here. How have your guests respond? Well, you're not open yet, but um, for PPE protocol and, and, and reaction to, um, it says early reactions from reopening include pushback from guests and, um, and op, you know, from wearing the PPE. Are you going to have your staff wear the mask? Are you going to have yeah. customers wear the mask? Are you going to um, require we're we're still working through that. I mean, as, as of right now, in our carryout model, um, we do have we do have staff wearing masks. Um, we're certainly going to be um, you know taking their temps. I'm waiting on a bunch of digital thermometers to get here um, to do that. As far as whether we're going to do that with our our guests or not, um, we're debating. There's a very spirited debate uh, right now, and um, you know the 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 topic of uh, how we interact with airports. Uh, today versus you know 20 years ago and the things that are violating what we feel might be civil liberties are going to become part of our, our way of being and um, so we're um, we're working through all of that right now and talking through it where there's a lot of different um, you know there's a obviously if you look at there's a restaurant group I think I sent you Olivia um, in Hong Kong um, that has an amazing playbook um, black sheep restaurant group I think is their name and um, they're doing some pretty extreme things and, and people have to sign a manifest and get 
information and then they get their temperature taken. Um, if they're if they're not willing to sign, they're not allowed in the restaurants. Um, if they're not willing to get their temperature taken, they're not allowed in the restaurants. And so we're um, we're just watching really closely a lot of the restaurants in town. And um, right now, from from our perspective, the people that are willing to dine in are not as um, concerned okay. about it as a whole. Um, and so and and I think right now you can make a case that going into some of the restaurants in our city is a lot uh, a lot safer proposition than going into a grocery store or the Home Depot right now. Yeah, great. Well, thank you, Ryan, for sharing. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, our next guest is uh, Lawrence Peterson, the executive vice uh, president from Bradbury Stamp Construction. Um, Lawrence, you guys are on site right now in Taos, my understanding, working on the Taos residences and have been there since before this started, correct? That's correct. Yeah, so can you can you sort of share with us, uh, you know, how you've adapted to the current realities and, and also things you've kind of learned along the way? Um, there's a lot of folks in the audience that, well, most, most operators have ongoing maintenance projects every summer, um, and a lot either have CapEx projects that were due to start or are contemplating them. So it'd be really interesting to hear, I mean, you've gone right through this so far. So, you know, what can you share with us about your experience? Yeah, thanks, Claire. So I think it, I think it is a little bit unique because we were like, I think a lot of people we were expecting to potentially be shut down and have all operations stop. And we were kind of waiting. And then all of a sudden it was uh, our governor made the executive order that construction would remain an essential business and we were to keep going. So, you know, that was a little bit unique. And I think we had to adjust rather quickly um, to this new reality that everybody's adjusting to. I will say that construction, um, I assume, is has a lot of similarities to ski resorts in that you're you're kind of self-contained in your site somewhere. So you have this kind of uh, hopefully an entrepreneurial spirit about making it happen and uh, trying to find a way to get through something. Um, but it but it certainly took some time. We are also pretty familiar with all the PPE that we were needing, and it wasn't as much of an adjustment, I think, to you know some of the things that other people are talking about today. So from that standpoint, um, by the nature of our business, it was a little bit better. Um, I do think that every site is different, and that was probably the biggest change. We manage about you know 20 to 30 different construction sites at any one time, and for us, it was unique in that every single site had to have its own game plan, and you know that that involves a lot of individual plans instead of kind of a, a one comprehensive plan maybe um, so that was a little bit unique but um, you know and, and then every 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 project has uh, whether it's uh, a, a, a significant owner that's that's making the call or a mayor of a community or or a federal agency or whatever it is so um, I think that was kind of unique but we we made a lot of the, the adjustments in a period of about a week and then we thought we kind of had it under control a little bit and had a new game plan and then you just constantly adjust and adapt so um, a little bit a little bit different I think um, in Taos you know we we went from trying to be a, a construction company that was you know a good neighbor in the community participating with all the local businesses that we could uh, buying locally hiring locally doing everything everything we can to be a good construction company in the community to then trying to overnight doing the exact opposite of that and trying to Kind of self-contained, pull yourself in within your uh, your borders of your construction site, and not interact with anybody. So that was probably one of the biggest, just fundamental differences that happens immediately. 
Um, it's, you know, it kind of goes against everything that we try to do as a good community, you know, based company. Um, but it's just, it's just the world that we're living in now. So um, that's some of the things that we've tried to do. Yeah. And we're lucky we've got David Norton, who's the CEO of Taos Ski Valley uh, on the, on the call today also. And David, maybe you can speak a little bit about, you know, even at the best of times as an operator, when you have a construction project, you're sort of dealing with that, trying to have both things go on in the same space. And it's always a very sort of complicated playbook. How have the rules changed in, in your view um, under, under what we're experiencing now? Well, I think the best thing for, for Lawrence is we got out of his way and <laughs> <laughs> they, they could start to really go to town. Uh, it was a tough decision for us because we uh, decided to close the resort as others had. Uh, but what do we do about the construction? I mean, there, this is a project, $40 million project that's a half, half built and you stop, you go. Uh, we had a lot of feedback from the community prior to our closing the resort that they asked us to close. And I think this is one of the biggest issues in these small town communities of tourism where the locals don't want people visiting uh, these small towns and they like being on the island right now. We decided to stay with the construction project. Bradbury Stamp put very strict guidelines in place. And really, it's been quite quiet uh, as far as people concerned about this construction going on. And I think it's truly a balance of economics and what you can do responsibly. But I think what Bradbury Stam has done is, is really isolate the property. And what we need to do now, thinking about maintenance projects going forward and lift maintenance and building maintenance and other uh, CapEx projects that we have is how do we truly isolate those projects and how do we put guidelines in place for other contractors, because now the smaller contractors need to start to come back. But I think strict guidelines and, and learning from, from Lawrence, and, and certainly over time, I'd like to learn uh, exactly what Bradbury Stand picked up over these last three or four weeks. You've been building through all of this. And, and Lawrence, maybe a last question for you, which is, what did you learn through this period? What Were your teams excited to come to work or nervous to come to work? And, and what are the quick tidbits that we can pick up from you as guidance going going forward i think i think it was kind of split you know we had we had sort of this group that wants to get to work and stay to work and you know there's there's nothing going to stop them from coming to work and then we have you know about half the other side of the folks that don't want to come to work and think it's a good time to stay home and we absolutely wanted people to make that decision for themselves and us not to to push them one way or the other other than to say we had to make changes to make our job sites uh you know as safe as we possibly could make them the other thing I'll say is we got closer to New Mexico OSHA, which, um, you know, by nature is a, an organization that we're close with anyway, but we just assumed as the largest construction company in the state, we should get closer to them and we should figure out a way to be on the same page with what's the safest way to manage a construction site instead of waiting for guidelines from them or uh, determinations. We thought we should create those together. And I think uh, by doing that, you know, we're kind of at the at the front end of that. And that way, whenever, like we made a decision that we're not going to allow carpooling to any of our job sites anymore. Uh, if you've ever been to New Mexico, there's no, no cities are very close and labor forces come from all over the place. And, you know, it's, a, it's not, it's a decision that you have to make because you just don't want folks in the same vehicle for hours and hours. And then they go to the jobs and they go back and it's just something like that. And now, you know, New Mexico OSHA is, is 
I don't, I don't think they can say they're requiring that, but I think they can say that they're strongly encouraging it and they're hoping that more companies do things like that, that, that makes some, some real, hopefully good changes on the job sites. So um, that's just one example, I think, but getting close to the authorities having jurisdiction uh, for us has been a really good thing. And it's also a multiplier because, you know, if you can invite some other construction companies to become a part of that conversation, you get essentially what this is with a lot of good ideas coming together and you don't have to pretend that you have them all on your own. Thank you very much, Lawrence, for your insights. Appreciate that. Um, we're going to move to our next guest. Our next guest is Joe Zavada, who's the Director of Aviation Operations at Taos Air. Joe, you operate a unique service at Taos Air that may well be a preferred way to travel. Do you think that um, you'll use that to your new advantage, to your advantage in this new world? Is there is there a way that that will be a, a selling point for you? Yeah, I think so. Um, we're already seeing that outside of outside of Taos. The our planes outside of the ski season are available for charter, and uh, our planes have uh, have been able to keep busy with uh, essential businesses who are need to move their people but don't want to take the airlines. So. We're already seeing that. Um, and then as we go into next ski season, I think uh, we're gonna have to lean into that as well as you know, really think hard about uh, what type of requirements with cleaning or, or uh, PPE or other things that uh, we have to do to, to, uh, to make our, our customers confident in, in being able to travel this way. Great. Uh, Joe, um, I think one of the, the key things is oftentimes the road to recovery implies kind of getting back to normal, but Taos Air is already a disruptor. I mean, you guys are really doing things very differently than the major air carriers. Mm -hmm. um, what, are you, what specifically are you doing differently, and do you see even kind of newer innovations as a result of COVID-19? I think there. I think there will be mandated uh, innovations that that we all have to have to follow. But with our small little operation, um, you know, we've got uh, two crews on each plane. We have two aircraft, and what we're doing is um, our crews normally work a, a week on, week off rotation, and normally we intermix them so that people fly with different people and they get they kind of mix it up. Right now, we're keeping everybody together, so and and on the same plane, so. The three crew members, two pilots, and, and a flight attendant, go to an aircraft. They, you know, they they live at home. We travel them to the plane, um, and then they stay with that plane for the week. And then they go home, and then the other crew comes in, and that those three people will stay together for the next, you know, however long, six months at least, I would suppose, um, just to limit the interaction even between our our small group of people. Uh, so that's just a staffing. And then uh, we've purchased a, um, through our, our operator uh, in California, we've purchased a, a disinfecting uh, fogging uh, machine that cleans the inside of the cabin um, in between legs or, or after a day of flying, and uh, as well as providing PPE and, and other cleaning supplies for the flight attendant to, uh, to use between legs and, and throughout the flight as well. Do you see other kind of changes relative to, you know, uh, baggage check, for example, or minimizing addition? I mean, again, Taos does a great job already versus the larger carriers. So I assume that's a huge competitive advantage mm -hmm. um, at some point. Yeah, um, you know, I think you know, things we, we're going to have to consider going forward are our, our capacity on the plane. You know, do we need to maintain uh, an empty seat next to somebody? Um, uh, 
will there be waivers for that for groups traveling together? Well, it's whether it's friends or family, we get a lot of groups obviously coming to Taos. Um, and then how do you manage that on the plane? Other things that uh, we'll be able to do that maybe the airlines won't be able to do is, is better control of uh, uh, egress boarding and, and deplaning of the plane. Um, like uh, uh, Travis mentioned with the herding of the cattle, we can uh, kind of meter that uh, really well with our planes and, and the fact that we use private terminals and keeping people separate and uh, boarding you know, two or three or four at a time and starting at the back of the plane so that nobody goes back and forth um, you know, past each other, just limiting the, the contact in the cabin. Great. Thank you so much, Joe, for your, your insights. Yeah. I, I guess I'd be curious really about just the broader travel industry and, and um, how you think, what are you seeing in the, in the changed experience for the, for the, the, the traveler who, who isn't doing the, the charter route, but just what insider knowledge you have on just some of the experience changes coming? Well, I think, uh, you know, we're going to see an increase in, in PPE uh, mandates. The, the major airlines came out late, late last week mandating some kind of face covering for all passengers. Um, I think the government will mandate stricter screening uh, at the TSA checkpoint. Um, and then a rethinking of, of the terminal in terms of how you, how you handle people and capacity and maintaining social distance. The industry as a whole is going to is going to face the um, uh, it's going to shrink um, majorly in terms of the, the cities that are served, and in both in frequency as well as uh, just complete loss of service in some cases. Mm -hmm. uh, in general, the the industry has migrated to larger aircraft because of the pilot shortage. Uh, so we're flying we're seeing less of the of the smaller aircraft that they can move to for smaller markets. And a lot of the small to mid markets are not going to be able to support, uh, you know, a, a 70 or a, or 100 passenger aircraft. So uh, the airline are going to have really no choice but to abandon those markets for a period of time um, until they have a smaller aircraft that can service it or, or the demand picks back up. So you're going to see a major, um, you know, people that um, have connection to the world from their small community through a hub. Uh, will will lose could lose that connectivity or, or just see a major impact in, uh, in sort of the breadth of schedule that they have to choose from. Great, thank you so much. Um, we're going to turn to our next guest, Reggie Woolridge, who's the GM of Marriott International in Cleveland, Ohio. Thanks, Reggie, for joining us. Um, Reggie, the hotel industry has taken a hit. Um, and how long do you see this lasting? And is there a difference between business and leisure market for you? Uh, thanks, Olivia, and thank you all for um, having me. Um, one of the things that uh, we see that's happening to us, which is what everyone is seeing within their business, is a complete um, negative impact, and we're measuring year over year. Um, for the second quarter, we've seen a 70% a decrease uh, in year-over-year -year business, and what we've done is we've looked at a forecast out based upon the second quarter uh, trend, and we're gonna go ahead and include uh, March in that. And then we've uh, forecasted that out uh, in some sort of sense that it's gonna continue to decline as we see cancellations continue to come in. And many of those cancellations have um, 
uh, rebooked for next year. A certain amount have rebooked for next year. There's a certain amount that um, just outright canceled. Uh, and then there's very few that were able to move in the year for the year. And so our team um, took a look at that and, uh, and forecasted that out to say that um, we're looking at a decline uh, in the uh, third quarter and fourth quarter and first quarter uh, of, 20, of 2021 uh, as it relates to um, what we feel is going to happen as it relates to an overall forecast. However, um, if we're in a drive market, uh, and I think many of you um, have probably talked about this, then we anticipate that um, the particular hotel in a drive market will come back a little sooner uh, than later, um, based upon you being a downtown hotel or resort hotel, um, which is gonna be a, a definitely a lagger. And so our hotel is um, near the airport and uh, we have an opportunity um, to um, remain open and we haven't suspended operations. And so what we've been doing is managing through a um, lower occupancy, but giving us an, an opportunity to really look at how we operate um, in, in, in this uh, current climate. So as we uh, begin to ramp up, uh, there are certain things that we will already have in place um, versus a, you know, some of our operations that were suspended, i.e. closed. And what about, I think many travelers will be hyper-focused on the cleanliness and they'll look for hotels that have the strident cleaning uh, protocols in place. Is the Marriott going to redesign the guest experience to address this and, and make that a, a, a selling point? Um, what, what, are you gonna, what, what is Marriott doing? Yeah, Marriott, along with uh, many other um, brands out there, as you've uh, read, um, you know, whether it's Hilton or Wyndham, uh, Marriott has a, a multi-prolonged approach to what we're going to do to ensure that our hotels are, are clean. Uh, we have a, um, put together a council. You've seen uh, the communication that's came out from uh, Henri Sorensen uh, on our uh, council uh, for cleanliness. And so our operation team is working um, behind the scenes right now to put together those uh, guidelines. Uh, so that when our hotels um, reopen and those that have yet to open um, have those things in place uh, for our guests that our guests are going to actually uh, demand. Um, so as we go from, uh, you know, restaurants to um, airplanes to rental cars to hotels, I, I believe it's, it's, we know it's going to be a norm of what the guest expectation is for us. And so uh, one of the simple um, processes that you know inside the guest room is going to be those high touch areas. Um, um, you know, whether it's the remote control, the TV, the guest room door lock, the key card, the credit card, um, all of those things uh, are going to be uh, really focused on uh, as we put together our um, program um, to maintain uh, a cleanliness um, for our guests when they return. Um, and again, one of the things that um, we have had the opportunity to do is almost be like a pilot uh, in, in this, um, you know, production of those guidelines, those policies and procedures, because we're still open. And so I'm on a call every uh, week talking about some of the things that we're doing 
and what some of the successes, successes are that we're having as we move through um, this um, putting together uh, what those guidelines are really gonna look like. Reggie, hospitality creates a really interesting kind of, um, there's, there's a kind of conundrum between trying to minimize touch points and offering like real hospitality, you know, really reaching out and touching someone. Is, is, are there anything you guys are doing relative to like uh, using technology for virtual check-in or keyless check-in or looking at ways to minimize what were otherwise touch points like maid service or even bell service? Yeah, um, as you know, um, uh, from an um, electronic standpoint, uh, many hotels have had the opportunity to install those electronic door locks to include, um, you know, uh, electronic devices where you order at the table. Um, our hotel currently is not, um, you know, at that uh, point yet. Um, those are some of the things that we're looking into and what that cost uh, would look like for a hotel that does not have that technology yet. But many of our um, hotels as well and, and resorts have already have that technology that basically we're going to be able to just turn that on. And so that will be an easier ramp up uh, for some of us in, in many of our conversations that we're having right now. But the technology that we are going to need that many hotels don't have, uh, that's a capital infusion. And as you know, uh, we're having some, some, you know, some challenges right now uh, with cash flow. Uh, but if you're looking to open, these are going to be some of the things that you're going to need to put in place. And so some of uh, the, the funds that you currently have in place, you're going to need to uh, expand some of those in order for you to be able to open up properly and protect the customer. And some of the things that they're probably already experiencing and are going to expect uh, as it relates to them not wanting to, um, you know, touch certain things. Um, are there operating parameters you're using right now that, you know, are you taking temperature checks? Are you, are you doing? Um... Yeah, we have the uh, tools right now, but it is not uh, mandatory uh, or we have yet to set those guidelines. We're still working on those uh, as it relates to temperature checks. Uh, we're monitoring our, our associates who are still in place and as we would always, and I'm just going to use this word, uh, no point intended, as we would always with the flu or if an associate is sick and recognizing that and, 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 and you know, taking care of the, the issue uh, before it becomes an issue. So uh, we have the thermometers. We're discussing now how we're going to uh, implement that. Um, I do believe there are state-by-state um, -state requirements. There is no requirement in the state of Ohio at the current moment, and neither within Marriott. I know it's what we're discussing right now, and the operation team is working on certain guidelines uh, for temperature checks. Thank you, Reggie. Quick question for David Norton. Are you doing anything different at the Blake Hotel? We are not operating right now, John, and we're trying to take uh, – as much input from these other hoteliers that are open. So time's on our, uh, on our side right now. Uh, the only question I had was just specifically, what are you doing? Like, I'm very curious as to what is the occupancy of your hotel? Are you, do you have a cap on occupancy? And what are you doing to turn over those rooms? Specifically, what are you doing right now that, is, that you're finding that is working and the guest is, the guest is expecting and they're, they're seeing you perform? Yeah, um, a couple of the operational things that we're doing right now is for our restaurant, which is um, our restaurant is uh, takeout only. 
Uh, we're actually only open for breakfast. Uh, we're not open uh, for lunch or dinner. Um, we have contract business in-house that breakfast is required. And those orders are uh, dropped at the door with a knock uh, and dropped at the door. There's no uh, contact. And so when uh, the guests check in, um, part of the check-in process is informing them of what our food and beverage operations are and if they would be uh, placing any food orders. We do have um, what we call grab-and-go items that are available that we put um, on a menu and the guests can actually um, pre-order those items so that we can have those items ready for them. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a knock and drop uh, at the door. Uh, many of our guests, uh, once they uh, check into the hotel, um, we actually uh, don't see them again. Uh, we do present them with a letter when they check in, which talks about uh, the cleanliness process that we take and what we're doing with our guest rooms now for any extended stay uh, guests, which uh, we haven't experienced yet because these are one-nighters and two-nighters. Um, but there is no service inside the guest room at this point. If you require uh, items for the guest room, uh, we will knock and drop those items off at the guest room door. Uh, we do have enough rooms, uh, fortunately, at this point. And what we're doing with our rooms is we're giving them a 24-hour rest. Um, so if a room is occupied uh, today, we give it a 24-hour rest before the room attendant enters the room to clean the room. And our room attendants have full um, PPE equipment uh, when they go in and clean the rooms. And as you know, many guest rooms are completely stripped right now, uh, only with the bare necessities. So there's no pens and no pads and coffee makers. Uh, we've removed all of those items from the guest rooms uh, at this time. Great. Thank you so much, Reggie. Appreciate your insights. Um, our last guest is Drew Tolkien. He is a restaurant, retail investment, and economic development professional, and he co-founded um, a company called Electric Playhouse. It's an immersive entertainment and dining experience that uses cutting-edge software to create fun. And um, Drew, as you look ahead to reopening and knowing customers will be apprehensive, what are you planning to do to gain their confidence to come back? I mean, you think about it, they're going to come back and do essential things, but you know, getting back to being comfortable to have fun in in your type of environment. How are you getting them to that point and assuring them that they can come and feel safe and, and enough to have fun? Yeah, excellent question, Olivia, and thanks for this, and thanks to Tawski Valley, a fellow B Corp here in New Mexico, for giving us the opportunity. So we're um, a retail location, 22,000 square feet in West, Oakland, uh, West um, Albuquerque. We were a, a Staples office supply, so just a big box, right? So we're fortunate that we do have a lot of physical space. But the safety of our guests and our visitors and our families, as for all of you on this call, is the thing we need to balance. And the conversation we're having right now about safety is, as someone mentioned at the beginning of this call and also kind of in our pre-comments before um, we, we started as a group, is that there's a lot of people who are really looking for opportunities. You know, they're going stir crazy in the home with the kids. And part of the safety is actually getting them out of the house to a fun, safe, educational opportunity. Uh, and so the question is, how do we do that? And what we're looking to do is use our physical space because we're fortunate to have so much of it 
and um, have at least a limited visitorship according to the state guidelines. Our governor in New Mexico has been very strong. She has a health background, and so she's been providing very solid guidance. And so we've been following the state requirements. So uh, right now it's at 20% of, of occupancy that will go up to 50% of occupancy over time. Uh, right now we're still completely closed, which was an incredible painful thing to do uh, for the family, just as our restaurant tour shared from Atlanta. Uh, we need to take care of our own people first. Uh, but the, we closed early so that they could apply for unemployment before the mad rush. And most of the folks were able to get in before systems crashed, both federal and state. So our employees are taken care of, and we do have the intention of rehiring them. Uh, right now, our state mandate is through May 15th. We're looking at a June 1st opening, uh, and it would be first to our friends and family, our annual pass holders, the people who know us. Uh, and also, we can also trust, to be honest, to behave appropriately. If you've got a bunch of young kids, you can't have them running around in a space and um, have too much chance of people coming together. So we've redesigned our 22,000 square feet. The restaurant's going to have half the occupancy it had before. We're going to move tables around, put tape down, create physical barriers. We have private dining rooms, and so we're going to expand the availability of that so people can come in with their own group literally we'd open the door for them so they can come into the space which has already been cleaned or sanitized and they don't even have to touch anything engage with anybody else for people who want that experience uh, for people who would like to see our group digital experience what we've done is um so what it is is we've got um, digital projection technology if you know a vr or virtual reality you have to put on the headsets. Our innovation is the fact that you don't need headsets, you don't need goggles, you don't need anything on your hands. It's sensors and projections. And what our techies have been spending the last two months on is improving the sensor sensitivity so that um, you actually don't have to touch a wall um, to get a reaction from our games. And so you can actually be in this digital environment and have a good time without having to touch anything anyone else has. Um, and so uh, to close up my remarks, what we're gonna do is make sure people have uh, face masks, have gloves if they'd like them. We're gonna make it fun. So we're gonna actually do branded gloves, masks, and other equipment if people like them. We're gonna have a staging and reception area for people to arrive and be assessed um, in terms of a health perspective. While as someone else mentioned on this call, it's very invasive to take someone's temperature. Uh, the point is to keep everybody safe. And if the environment can be clean and safe for everybody, that if somebody has a potential risk factor, even if they're not sick or don't think they're sick, we just want to explain to them, this is for the safety of everybody. And we really want you to come back when you can experience and enjoy it too. But um, any risk is a risk that we can't take for anybody else. So did that answer the question, Olivia? It did, yes. And um, and when do you, so you're you're waiting for opening on May 15th or when, or you're, you're, you're still not open, but you're projecting to open some point this month. We're planning to open June 1st um, because May 15th is what the governor has set right now. We don't know if it's going to change or not. We still have to bring our staff back. We still have to order food. Um, and then we'll have a Memorial Day weekend, fingers crossed. We're going to have the opportunity for our friends to come in and experience privately in smaller groups and have kind of a reopening and full launch. Again, depending on what the state is saying, uh, we're always going to follow the public health mandates. Uh, June 1st is what we're looking at, but again, at a reduced capacity. And so one of the goals is to move people, join us during off-peak times and to give incentives so that more people can enjoy us 
during different periods of time and be safe for everyone. So we have come to um, our end of our, our huddle here. And um, I just wanted to thank our guests again um, for coming and, and sharing and um, being a part of this cross-industry huddle and the open sharing dialogue that we've had um, over the past few weeks has been um, really key. And, and we hear from operators all the time that, you know, especially during this isolation and when they're literally, as Ryan had said, trying to figure things out, you know, on a daily, hourly, weekly basis. And it's just been helpful to have the connection to fellow business um, leaders and operators to try and sort this out together. Thank you for taking the time to listen to episode seven of our special Huddle mini-series. There's a lot we can learn from other industries who are facing many of the same challenges as mountain resort operators. If you're interested in summer operations, join the Huddles for our sister publication, Adventure Park Insider. Learn more at www.adventureparkinsider.com huddle. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The PodSam advisor is Alex Kaufman, the Wintry Mix podcast guy. I am Sarah Bordeaux, and thank you for listening to PodSam.